G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. For those who are passionate about Christian music, you might be interested in deepening perspectives and understanding something of the history of Christian music. Well, if you were interested in the history of rock and roll, you'd probably go back to the 1950s, disco and punk out of the 1970s, hip-hop and new wave in the 80s, indie pop and R&B in the 90s, and, of course, there's the more recent phenomenons of alternative, techno, electro-pop and experimental music styles. But if you're talking Christian music, you have perhaps all of the above and a rich history that dates back thousands of years, way back into biblical times. Historian Mike Spencer has just released his latest book. It's called Let the People Rejoice, an interactive history of Christian music. Mike is joining us. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to 2020. Hello, Neil. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Mike, you're seriously covering thousands of years in your history of Christian music. Uh, Tell us how far it dates back. Well, right back to the beginning of Genesis, I suppose, or even even further back if you look at the fall of Satan, and because he was, you know, music master in heaven, and when he fell, he didn't fulfil his music ministry, but he corrupted it, and so. Down through the centuries, we've had the conflict between God's music and the music of the world, and uh, still going on today, very much so. Is it the case that, in a very broad sense, you might have music that glorifies God and music that doesn't glorify God, and then there's music that absolutely glorifies other individual personalities? Is that the way you'd look at it? Definitely, yes, definitely. Um, And I think... um, over through over the centuries, there's, there's been quite a lot of controversy within Christian music, within the church, as to what sort of music we should have. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that is, as people have been very much aware of of the need to preserve the purity and the holiness, if you like, of of Christian music and not to pollute it with the world. Now, sometimes perhaps they've gone overboard there, but um, I think that's been very much in people's minds. No doubt there's controversial issues that might be raised even when you're reading your book, but part of the title is that it's an interactive history of Christian music. What does that mean for the person who's going to read your book? Well, Let the People Rejoice to begin with, of course, is a line from a song by Fanny Crosby, um, To God Be the Glory, Let the People Rejoice. But the interactive part... um, Music is very much involves participation, and I don't want people just to read about the music, but I want them to actually experience the music. And so I've got icons through the book where they can either sing or play or access um, sound clips or video clips of the different songs and different performers uh, so that they can actually experience the whole history right from the beginning right up to the present day. If they do that, then they'll get a really, really good grounding in the whole heritage of Christian music. 
So you'd be able to go and uh, you'd be reminded that you could, in fact, uh, click on a link perhaps on YouTube and hear a rendition of Fanny Crosby's Let the People Rejoice. And that would be one example of just the many interactive points you've got through your book. Yes, yes, there are, there are many icons through the book which point you to places and, and lists and songs that you can actually, names of songs or names of, of artists that you can actually look up and, and experience for yourself. Now, let's come back to the Bible for a few moments because more than 500 references to music in the Bible, what is that telling us about how important music may be to God and, you know, right throughout the Old Testament and the New? I think uh, music is, is it comes from the, from the heart of the Creator God. I think it's I think it's vitally important. I mean, there are, there are scriptures like Zephaniah three seventeen where it says, and we, we used to sing this song: "The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty; He will save; He will rejoice over thee with joy; He will rest in His love, and He will joy over thee with singing." So that tells us that God is musical. God even sings over us. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of listeners will recall singing Scripture in song. And while we think of that as a 70s and 80s style of Christian music, of course, when we're talking about Scripture in song, we're talking about the lyrics that were generated uh, two, three, four thousand years ago. And uh, that's very significant, isn't it, that these lyrics have lasted uh, through these millennia? I think that's one reason why scripture and song was so incredibly popular. And, and being a New Zealander myself, of course, I, I claim that for a New Zealand. Um, but it's been extremely popular over the over the years. And in fact, me, and some churches today, they still sing scripture and song, so it's still going strong. And singing, I think it was just singing the Bible, singing the Word of God. You know, getting the Word of God into our minds and into our hearts was was so powerful. Let's talk controversial things that you might have in your book, Mike, because I know you make a reference to what some people refer to as worship wars. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a phrase that, that people have coined to, to really to describe the, the controversy that there has been between those who uh, have um, opposed contemporary Christian music in the last 40, 50 years, and those who have supported it. And even today, you know, you get churches, some churches that are still, won't have anything to do with contemporary Christian music, um, and others have embraced it completely. So I, I know we tend to use that word wars a lot these days. We talk about the culture wars and the history wars and the worship wars, but it's not really a war, but it's, 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 a, it's a difference of opinion, a difference of perspective, a difference of approach. Has there been controversy that's really pitted uh, theological positions against one another? Do you explore any of that in your book? To a certain extent. Um, for example, um, back in the time of the Reformation, uh, of course, we, we, we had had a long period through the Middle Ages when um, music had basically become the preserve of trained singers. There wasn't much congregational singing. And also... Um, there, were, there weren't any people, or there were a few people composing songs, but it wasn't part of the mainstream Catholic tradition. You know, the plain song, the chant, was was what was the main main form of music, main form of worship. And then, of course, um, in the Reformation, Martin Luther comes along, and he believes that congregations should be able to sing, and not only sing, but sing popular songs, sing catchy songs, and and they should be able to use musical instruments. And so you get a whole change in music. 
And um, and then, of course, you get um, part of the Reformation, you get John Calvin and the Calvinists. And, of course, they argue an opposing theological view. They argue that that music should only be the Psalms, that you should only sing the Psalms. That's all you should sing. No, no humanly composed songs, just the Psalms, and there should be no musical instruments. And so you get these two contrasting... Um, Positions even within the Reformation, and it's take you know it took a while for the uh, for the the churches that that, that um, support the Calvinist position. It took them a while to actually allow songs to be sung in the church. And Isaac Watts, of course, was very influential there. He was a Calvinist, but he believed that um, the standard of worship in the churches was so bad that he needed to do something about it. And so he started composing hymns, many beautiful hymns. Mike, I think of contemporary Christian music today and I know that there are critics who say that contemporary Christian music is trying to be like the other music that might be in the charts at the time. But of course, when we talk about the history of Christian music, there was a time, wasn't there, when really Christian music was the form of music that people listened to because it was being generated by the most creative people in the best settings in the church. Yes, of course you, you you get, and I go into in my book I go into um, even some of the great composers like Handel um, with his Messiah and Haydn, the Creation, and some of those other great great people who wrote wrote the music. But um, going back to your question about the um, the contemporary Christian music, um, I think I, I've grown up. My, my my life story, I've grown up through hymns. I was brought up on hymns and gospel songs and choruses and and then scripture and song, of course, and now contemporary Christian music. So I, I, I enjoy the whole range of music. I, I love it all. I love them all. There's good in everything. And um, I think the, the best songs in any genre of music, the best songs are those that have the best melody, not rhythm, not rhythm, the best, not harmony, the best melody and the best lyrics. A song that's got great harmony, uh, sorry, great melody, sorry, and great lyrics is going to be a song that's going to last. And, and it's whether it's traditional hymns or whether it's contemporary Christian music, there's wonderful contemporary Christian music that has great melody and great lyrics. Mike, what difference does it make to people who are lovers of Christian music and those who are using Christian music? And I'm thinking here in a church setting where you might have worship leaders and they're influenced by all sorts of music genres that they might be shaped by in their younger years. But what difference do you think it will make for people who are in a worship leadership role to have an increased understanding of a depth and a perception of the history of Christian music? Well, the fact of the matter is that in many churches today, uh, worship is led by young people, and, and often these young people just have no idea, basically, of the heritage of Christian music. Now, they may know a little bit, they may know, um, you know songs like Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art, but they don't, um, they don't basically know the heritage, and, and this is a passion of mine. I want to, I want to see churches where worship leaders are able to choose from not only from the modern songs, but also from the old songs. There are wonderful older songs. And, of course, the older people, most churches are made up of young people and older people. The older people love the old hymns sometimes. They sometimes love the scripture and song, and so why not? The scripture that really speaks to me about this um, was made by Jesus in Matthew thirteen fifty two, where he said, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven 
is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things that are new and fresh and things that are old and familiar. And so I'd love to see worship leaders bringing out of their treasure things that are new and fresh as well as things that are old and familiar. That's my goal and that's my prayer. Well, your book comes with some impressive endorsements too. Uh, Great worship leaders like Graham Kendrick and Scott Wesley Brown. Uh, No doubt you sent your manuscript to them in the formation stages and they were impressed with the sorts of things you were studying. Yes, they did. They, yeah, I was very blessed to get endorsements from, from such giants in the music industry as those, yeah. And where can people get a hold of your new book? It's published by Ark House Press. Uh, where can they get a hold of it? Well, I'm hopeful that it will be stopped by Vision, um, Vision Radio in their store soon. I've just sent a copy there um, for them to have a look at, so hopefully they'll have it in stock soon. Uh, you can also access it on my website, which is www.mikespencer.com.au and you can buy it through my website. It's $25 a copy plus postage. Well, I think uh, look forward to the probability that it'll be in the Vision Store and uh, at the same time, mikespencer.com.au to get a hold of Mike's new book, $25 as he mentioned. It's uh, published by Ark House Press and it's called Let the People Rejoice, an Interactive History of Christian Music. Mike Spencer, thanks so much for updating us on your new book today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.